0: of y'all, I would guess, have heard the um, the old adage that the end justifies the means. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that if I've got to do something drastic, if I've got to make a decision to do something that might not make much sense in the moment or that may seem like it's too much in the moment, I've got to know that end that I'm shooting for, what I'm trying to accomplish will justify or make right the means that I am using. Um, Maybe somebody was a danger to themselves so we knocked them out cold so we could keep them safe. The end justifies the means. The story that pops in my mind, (coughs) years ago, we, I grew up in Helen and um, all those houses down there are old coal camps early 1900s, and they had uh, fireplaces in multiple places with chimneys running off through the – a couple of chimneys usually running through the houses. And my dad and mom had gotten together and decided that they wanted to tear off the middle wall between our living room and our well, – I guess what was our – uh, living room and TV room <coughs> to open up that space to have one big room. So that was the end they were shooting Came home and my dad had started working on this project where he had to tear the wall out and bust that chimney up. And what do you think happened when that chimney got busted up? It was black and there was black stuff everywhere, all over everything. And my mom literally said when she walked in, she just started crying because it was just such a mess. And you're thinking this is. But the means that were used were necessary, and the end, which now they've got this big wide open area where we can all be together in that room, and all the Christmas presents fit in there, it's probably the only room in the house, that will fit in when we get together. But the end justified the means. You did what you had to do to get the end result that you wanted. Now, today... ask ourselves as we prepare to read this passage of scripture, Matthew 21, 12, to 17, does the end justify the means? Because we're going to look at Jesus today, and let me just say, this is not little baby Jesus meek and mild. And it may make you go, wait a second, who, you know, am I reading the right book? Is this, is this who I think it is? And the question I want to set before you as we start out, does the end justify the means? So if you would please stand as we publicly read <clears throat> this portion, this passage, Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers." children crying out of the temple Hosanna to the son of David they were indignant and they said to him do you hear what these are saying and Jesus said to them yes have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise and leaving them he went out of the city to Bethany and watched their father you have done great things and I know that in and of our we can even look at the cross and ask ourselves, really, is this what had to happen? And the answer is yes, because it has been written. And I pray that as we look at what has been written today, that we would see you acting, that we would see you doing things to bring about an end that we can't quite see yet, but that we will Holy Spirit, help us to learn and grow and change, and pray that you would give us the light that we need to see what we're reading and talking about today. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Twenty-one twelve. <clears throat> and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, keep in mind, as we move into this passage today, uh, that what we will see from last week's passage all the way through into chapter 28 is the last week of Jesus' life. So we are, (coughs) we have turned on the microscope here. We're not looking at a telescope at a big wide expanse. We're looking at a small, small section, and some of these passages that we're going to look at between now and Matthew 28 in this last week of Jesus' life. We saw um, last week we let them, after seeing his entry into Jerusalem, which would have been on the first day of the week, and now for the Jews, that's Sunday. And it's real weird the way it works, and it's going to be best, if, if you really want to keep track of this online, you might look up um detailed graph chart of the last week of Jesus' life, because again, the Jews marked their day sunset to sunset, okay? So the beginning of their day is evening, and the beginning of our day we usually think of as morning, right? So there's some confusion as to, so Sunday evening when the sun goes down, they're calling it Monday, and we we wouldn't call Monday Monday until Monday morning, thank God, right? Of course, you know, don't, don't, we don't want to put that off as far as we can, even though this week is a holiday weekend, so Monday's not too bad. But anyway, keep. Keep in mind as we try to keep track of what day it is, what time it is, when they mention the first day of the week, that kind of thing, we've got to keep in mind the, the cycle of days. They go from sunset to sunset for a full cycle. We kind of look at it more as morning to morning, so morning by morning mercy I see, right? That's biblical. But we left him last week after he had entered into Jerusalem, and as he entered, sitting on a coat, the foal of a donkey, on the robes. That were spread over this animal, and the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We said last week that the crowds were definitely excited, and the crowds were expecting Jesus to be the king and to to save them now. And then, when when asked, Who is this that's coming into town by the people in Jerusalem? they said, Well, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet from Galilee. Jesus from Galilee, the prophet from Nazareth. And that they kind of missed it. You know, the, in their fever, in their fervor, they were looking for someone and they thought Jesus was that someone and he was, but not the way that they expected. and Not the way that they were wanting him to come into town. So they were kind of missing it. The mob mentality, the hysteria, had actually kind of misidentified Jesus as they identified him correctly. And that makes zero sense. And that's exactly what was going on. So, they ultimately identified Jesus as a prophet from Nazareth. And again, that's, that's not wrong, but it's not the whole picture. So, after riding into town on the back of a donkey and the praises of the crowd, Mark tells us, this is the end of last week, what happened after Jesus rode into town in Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, and it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now that was what we looked at last week, and at the end of that Palm Sunday, Jesus had went to the temple, he checked things out, It says since it was late, Mark says, he went back to Bethany with his disciples to stay there, now why did he go to Bethany, who was in Bethany? Some guy that he had raised from the dead, named Lazarus, and then Lazarus with his sisters Martha and Mary, so Jesus, there's no way that he would have found a place to stay in the city on the week of forget about it, you know, it's like um, trying to get in somewhere down in Fairleigh when the fair is going on, but it's on the stairway, like much, much bigger than that, so he knew people who lived nearby, Bethany was very close, just across the valley there from Jerusalem, so Jesus is spending his nights, getting his rest, his sleep, whatever he's doing there in the night, at Lazarus's house with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, so that's what's going on in Bethany. So, Bethany's kind of his home base through this last week of his life. And now, back in today's text, back in Matthew 21-12, we see him coming back into Jerusalem, and he comes back to the temple. And apparently, he hadn't liked what he had seen in his visit to the temple the night before. It says that he entered the temple, and what did he do? And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he over and the seeds of those who sold pigeons. Now again, get this picture in your head. Here's this no-name prophet, this no-name rabbi from Nazareth, despised Nazareth. He's riding in the town, yelling, "Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David! God save us now! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord." You can just imagine the chief priests and the scribes going, "What? No, wait a second. We know this guy. We hate this guy. He's not the Messiah." Y'all stop it. Jesus walks into the temple Sunday night. He looks around. And He leaves and he comes back the next morning. And when he walks in, with this whole swollen city abuzz about him and and about who he is, and while they're expecting him to come in and draw the sword to vanquish their Roman oppressors, Jesus goes to a different place. Jesus goes to where their real problem is. And the conquering king goes to the temple. And he wants to deal with their religious activity, not their governmental activity. He didn't march up to the Roman garrison or go to the governor's palace and demand freedom for the Jews, which is what they wanted him to do. Instead, he marches into the temple and denounces their public form of worship. And what was the central focus of that denunciation? And when he goes into the temple and he sees, and again, I can just imagine him surveying it the night before. He's kind of staking it out. What's, What's the thing about? This is terrible. This is awful. I'm coming back tomorrow, and i got a plan. And so, he comes in and he sees the market mindset of the temple. The market activity in the temple. And what was going on there? Well, keep in mind that all the Jews came to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. That meant that hundreds of thousands, really probably more than a million, say that Jerusalem during Passover at this time there were probably two to two and a half million people in the city. They actually had to expand the borders of the city so that they could say that they were in the city because they were supposed to worship in Jerusalem. They had to, they had to extend the borders because there were so many people at that time during, during Passover. They, so you're talking about two and a half million people some of them have made a journey, a long journey to get to Jerusalem. And what's the main idea behind Passover? A lamb being sacrificed in place of the enslaved Hebrews way back in Egypt under Pharaoh. That final plague, remember? So God said, kill a lamb, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb, one per family. I'm going to send the death angel out and I'm going to kill every firstborn in Egypt. Unless you kill a lamb and put the blood on the on the doorposts not be death of the firstborn in that house. So that's what they're commemorating, okay? So year after year, at God's prescription, the Jews would commemorate that original Passover by selecting an unblemished lamb. By the way, when Jesus rode into town last week in our passage, that's what's called Lamb Selection Day. That's the day that they picked their lamb out that they would use for their Passover meal. That's when Jesus rode into town. (coughs) Jerusalem, bringing a lamb with you, and then the priest inspects it and says, this lamb's not unblemished. This is not going to work. You've got to have a different lamb. Well, then what are you going to do? Well, the chief priests and the temple workers saw an opportunity to make some money and to help some people. I'm sure they said, we can really help some people here. So they started selling animals for sacrifice. Lambs, or if you couldn't afford a lamb, then a dove or a pigeon, as per the laws of God. So people would be able to buy their sacrifices when they came to the temple. So what do you think they started doing? They started buying their animals when they got to the temple. That was just easier, right? We'll go to Temple Mart and we'll just buy them there and they've got everything there. So they just went up there. And and, and how how do you think the chief priests and scribes and the temple workers priced things? Let's say exorbitant. They charged a lot for an unblemished lamb, or even for a pigeon. So kind of like when you go to a stadium event and you rent a seat cushion there, and it's like twelve bucks, and like you can buy them for ninety-nine cents. Well, I'll just get one when I get there, <coughs> and that became the mindset. <coughs> Excuse me, you should just cover your mouth when you when you're wearing a mask. I don't know how works. No, I'll cover. It. So <coughs> they mark up the price. The prices were swollen substantially. I mean, they had to have this stuff if they are going to celebrate the Passover, supply and demand. So in in the chief priest, scribes, temple workers' mind, the end justifies the means. We can do this. We should do this. And what they're thinking is, hey, we're helping people out, and we're making money for the temple, which really making money for the temple was making money for them. So in their mind, of course, the end. So why not just bleed out every penny you could? I mean, it's for the Lord's work, right? Oh, and your money had to be exchanged, too, because the currency from your place wasn't valid in Jerusalem, so you had to exchange your money, too. And you lost about 25% of that worth when you exchanged your money. So you trade in a dollar, you get 75 cents back. So this religious, beautiful, outpouring was a money-making extravaganza, or extravaganza, if you want to say it that way, and can you imagine the number of transactions that they went through the week of Passover, with two to two and a half million people flowing in and out of the city, well, Jesus saw it, and he'd seen it for all these years now, he's probably in his 30s somewhere, he could come to Jerusalem every year, probably with his family, to celebrate the Passover, and every year he'd seen it. In, he's like, I'm seeing this and I'm going to do something about it. So Jesus starts his holy week work exactly here. <clears throat> and it's not work to make money. Quite the opposite. It's to unmake the money. It says in verse twelve that he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And that pretty much covers the basis, right? And don't glamorize this, don't beautify this. This is ugly. This is uh, this is anger. This is rage monster stuff. You know, Jesus was not a rage monster. Don't don't put me on that. So if you're if you're in the temple and if you're if you're selling in the temple or if you're buying in the temple or if you're changing money, Jesus ran you out of there. Get out of here. Period. 2, verses 14 through 16. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So now this is the second time Jesus is doing this, by the way. Jesus did this twice, and the first time, Description from John of how he did it. He makes a whip of cords. Whoosh, whoosh. And rawhide, head them up, run him out, get them out of here. I mean, Jesus is running them out. And he is angry. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But if you go back to the Matthew passage. Okay. Now the second time that he's doing it. Again, we don't give much detail. But he runs them out. He overturns the tables of the money changers. And grabs the seats of those who sold pigeons and overturns them too. See, Jesus knew how to motivate people when he needed to, and it's not pretty. But again, the question is: Does the end justify the means? We'll see, hopefully. So he had made a whip back there that first time, which he used to help the reluctant merchants find some motivation they didn't know they had. And while we don't know that he did that here in Matthew, it make sense that he did something like this to move these masses out of the temple, because it was a lot of people. Sellers and buyers. He chased the people out, turned over the money changers tables, flipped the chairs of the dove merchants. I will not illustrate that for you this morning. He chased the people out, turned over tables, flipped chairs. And then Mark eleven sixteen 16 adds this at the end of this he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. See, well, what would happen was the temple was kind of like a shortcut. You could just walk through the temple so that you didn't have to walk all the way around the temple to get to the other side. So the temple would just become a place to buy and sell and a place to save you some time so that you didn't have to walk all the way around the temple. Well, Jesus stopped that too. It would be like if people just had to get over here to look at the garden. So I'm just going to walk through here and go out this door so I don't have to walk all the way around. Jesus said, y'all get out, throwing things, flipping things over, stop right there, nobody's coming through here. Now get the picture. <clears throat> Jesus is saying, you guys have missed the whole point of the temple. And everything that you're doing in here is not okay. So you're flipping over, throwing things, I'm sure he was yelling, maybe hitting people with a whip, I don't know. The doors, go around, you losers, get, get out of here, and here he stands, in the temple, which looked like a circus just a few minutes ago, and now it's Jesus, and as he's chasing them out, he says, verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, is shooing people out of the temple. He tells them why he's chasing them all. And of course he uses the word to chastise them. His quote is from Isaiah 56, 7, which says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. So that's where the direct quote comes from. And we'll refer back to this in its context in just a, in a little bit. But for now, Jesus is reminding God's people what God's temple is supposed to be for. And as lambs and pigeons and coins and chairs are flying around, Jesus is quoting the Bible to make it clear that all this commerce, all this hubbub is out of place here. This place, this temple is here so that people would be praying. And praying for who? Isaiah says for all peoples, all the nations, not just Jewish people who are coming to celebrate the Passover. But, Jesus says, you're not den of robbers. He levels his judgment against them and their activities as he decries their robbing of the common man, their robbing of the poor, their robbing of every pair of feet that come into their den. And what's a den? A den is the lair of a wild animal. Our old buddy Daniel from the Old Testament got thrown into what? A den full of lions, by the way. A lion den could be empty, but a den full of lions So he called their their work there in that place that they were making that place a den of robbers. He called them basically called them a bunch of wild animals devouring people for their money. And he said, "This is your doing. You made it a den of robbers. Their acts of extortion are robbery, and Jesus calls it just that. They're stealing money and devouring the people whose money they are taking here in the place set aside for prayer for those same people, actually for all." Be prayed for, not prayed upon here. But that's not how these robbers see it. And Jesus is making it clear that it's not okay. And so now, with all the commerce gone, now what? Well, nature hates a vacuum, right? We can't stand it when something's empty. We've got to fill it back up. We can't just dig a hole to have a hole with itself. State fair on steroids just a few moments ago now looks like a mercy parade. Jesus chases out the ravenous wolves who were robbing people blind, and then the blind and the lame see an opening and they flock in to be with Jesus. And why do they flock in to be with Jesus? Because they know that he can heal them. They know that he can help them. They know that they can receive grace and mercy and healing and blessing with this guy Jesus. And then these blind guys, who's in there? It's Jesus. I'm going nothing to keep them from it. And they flood in there because they know that he can heal them. And as they flood in, guess what he does? He heals them. And just get that picture in your head. Think about it. Feel it in your heart. This place of worship has been cleaned out by the Messiah himself. And again, I can just imagine all the noise just dying down and everything. And Jesus says, okay. This place of worship is now a place of worship. This place that's supposed to be for praying and hope and healing has, oh wow, all of a sudden become a place of hope and healing. who should have benefited from the ministry of this temple, finally can come and receive hope and help and healing. Now watch this. Let's look back at that Isaiah quote from earlier. But I want to look at it in its three-verse context. So we looked at verse 7 before. I want to read 6, 7, and 8 in light of what we've just seen. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Now here's our quote that we look These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now watch verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Yeah. The temple should have been a center for prayer for all peoples, and God will be himself in his plan. But there in verse 8 specifically it says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to besides those already gathered.'" And that word outcasts, that's worth stopping for a second. It refers to those who have been cast aside, thrust away, driven away, banished. And these blind and lame surely fit that description. The robbers who had set up shop in this temple would have no time for these poor outcasts We're doing business here, and business is about money, and you blind and lame beggars got no money. You're coming looking for money. Well, you've come to the wrong place because we take people's money here. So get out of here. You're not allowed in here. This is a place of commerce. This is a place of wealth. We're making money, and we're helping people in the name of God. And in doing so, they cast out the poor, the blind, the lame. And God said way back in Isaiah 700 years before, the outcasts that I'm going to gather into my temple. And that is literally happening right here. The marketplace of the temple was set up to extort money from people and since these blind and lame didn't have any they're outcasts. But now God is gathering these outcasts in and he's blessing them. Jesus is healing them showing his kingdom and establishing the effectiveness of his grace and mercy to the outcast after casting out the robber. The robbers didn't need the grace of God to run their thievery ring, but these blind and lame are flocking to Jesus, crying out for that grace in their lives, and receiving it in the temple of God from the Son of God. God is doing what he said he would do, and he's doing it in the temple, like he should have been doing it all along. So how do you think the temple folk feel about this? You probably guess. chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" They were indignant. So, if there was ever any doubt about the violence of these religious elites, this verse chases all that away. Look at the wording. But is where we start. We've looked at this contrastive conjunction over and over and over again in Matthew's gospel. There are wonderful things going on with helpless and hopeless people receiving the grace of God, seeing the power of God, blind people are seeing, lame people are walking. And we're going, that's great. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw, what did they see? They saw these miracles. They saw this grace in operation. The wonderful things that he, Jesus, did. And when they saw these wonderful things that Jesus did, but see, because that's not all the Their money drying up. So we've got this contrastive conjunction set against Jesus's grace and glory and power and miracle working against these guys who are just thinking about money. And it's not just blind and lame people that they're seeing. It also says what? It says that they saw children, right? Ba-ba-ba-ba. The there are. Children. The word can infer a pretty wide age range, from babies or infants all the way up to young men. So, but I would think if they're in the temple and they're saying stuff, I mean, they're they're old enough to be in the temple and they're old enough to be saying stuff. So they're not babies, I wouldn't think. But the word can mean anywhere from infant up to young men. So I'm thinking like elementary school age. They're about to get in trouble with the money changers because they, they, they cannot believe what these children are saying. And they're now repeating, these children are repeating what they heard about this guy that they're watching heal you know, all these people. They heard something yesterday. The crowds, what was it they were saying? Oh, it was Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. And they're like, hey, it's that Hosanna guy. It's that Jesus guy who rode into town yesterday in our parents. So here's these kids, and I don't know if they know what they're doing or not, but they're, they're like, Hosanna to the Son of David! And I guess, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna the Son of David! And again, whether they're cognizant of what they're doing or not, it is infuriating the money changers. The chief priests and the scribes, they are ticked. These kids had to be pleasantly surprised to be standing in the temple because they probably got shooed away, dismissed, like we've seen them dismiss kids before, And they must have seen these miracles, and they're amazed at what Jesus had done, both chasing the people out and then healing the other people. So they start mimicking the chorus that they probably heard the big people singing the day before. And it absolutely incensed the chief priests and scribes. These power brokers were completely undone by the blind, the lame, and the children. And it says that they were in Word means to become angered at something that is seemingly unjust or wrong. And I can just imagine these chief priests and scribes, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. What where's, our, where's where are the animals? Where's the money? There's there's coins all over the floor, tables are turned over, there's kids singing Hosanna to this guy that we hate so bad. This is all wrong, and they're indignant. him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So these panicked priests of power, indignantly looking at Jesus, and they say to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're pointing to the kids. They're inferring that if he really did hear what they were saying, if he really did understand what they were saying, then, then Jesus wouldn't allow it. Or he'd be upset in some way at these kids and make them stop running out of here. I mean, do you hear this crazy blather? They're calling you the son of David. They're calling on you to save us. And that's obviously preposterous. Do you hear it? And Jesus said, yes. Well, yes, yes, I have heard what they're saying. I heard it yesterday when I rode into town. And I'm hearing it again from them. And notice that he's not turning them down. He's not says, yeah, I hear him. And then he turns to the chief priests and scribes and he says, have you ever read? And he uses this shot on several times. We've seen it already through Matthew. And it's an insult of insults to those folks who are trained to know, memorize, and teach the scriptures to other people. So, hey hey, guys, there's this book that God wrote. It's really good. Do you ever read it? Yeah. Because in there, there's this verse that says out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you prepare to praise. That's a quote from Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And again, this is a well placed dagger that Jesus is wielding here. He reminds them that God has and will prepare and receive praise from even infants and nursing babies. So why would these children not be able to praise him? And again, don't rush past that too quickly. In receiving this praise from these children, And by referring the chief priests and scribes to God preparing praise from infants, Jesus is saying that the worship of these children directed toward him is both good and right, making their worship of him equal to worship of God. Which is right. Chief priests and scribes did not say it that way. The thing that the chief priests and scribes are saying should be stopped is being touted by Jesus as the very plan of God. And therefore it's his plan. Therefore it's his work. If they read their Bibles the way that they should have, they would know this. They would recognize Jesus as the God-man, the Son of David, the Messiah, but they haven't read their Bibles correctly. They've read their Bibles, but they haven't read it correctly. In fact, they've misinterpreted and mangled the text of Scripture for so long that they cannot see God's plan, nor can they see God himself right in front of their eyes. So Jesus says, let the kids worship. They get it. Runs them out. Jesus heals the blind and lame. The kids worship. The chief priests and scribes are indignant. Jesus chides them and teaches them the Bible. And then he leaves them. He leaves them. He had emptied out the commerce of the temple, healed some folks, received worship from children, then ransacked the theology of the chief priests and scribes. Then he leaves them. It seems very foul. It seems very honest when we get to the passage that is verses 23 through 27, probably two weeks from today, we'll go on. These chief priests and scribes will challenge Jesus' authority, but he'll refuse to even answer their question. Then he'll start telling parables about them after that, not addressing them directly, but talking about them while they're right there. And they're like, hey, we're right here. We know you're talking about us. And he's not even addressing them. He leaves them here. He makes it, he's like, I Now, I would imagine, I'm almost positive, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm almost positive that as soon as Jesus left, they set the money tables back up. They brought the animals back in. They chased the kids out. They got rid of the blind and lame people. And business went on as usual. But Jesus left them. And they don't know how tragic that really is. So they go back. to justifying their ends by their means while Jesus had come in asking for new means and a new end and they're going to miss it and he left he's leaving them there this is where you want to be this is what you want to do I'm leaving now he'll be back in the temple for the end of his life but he's leaving and now they'll start taking the steps to hunt him down and forcibly bring him back to them in their temple on their terms, which will happen in just a few short days from this event that we referenced today. So Jesus leaves them, and he goes out of the main city of Jerusalem and back to Bethany where he's lodging with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And man, I would just love to know what those evenings were like. Jesus and his disciples and his friends telling stories, worshiping and listening to Jesus teach and speak. And they don't know it, but here in the last week of his life, Jesus knew it. Can you imagine those evenings? Hanging out with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, 12 disciples. It must have been pretty cool. I'd love to know what that was like. must have been an absolute joy for Jesus even, following the events of the day and the events that will soon take. Application. We, took, we we're looking at application based on three P's, and all three P words are literal words. They, I didn't have to make one up this week. Prayer, prosperity, and praise. <clears throat> Prayer, prosperity, and praise. First one is. What was it that Jesus said his house was to be? A house of preaching. A house of praise. No? A house of prayer. Now listen, I'm for singing. I'm for preaching, obviously. And I don't think we're wrong to do this. But I think we're wrong. We're wrong to not use this building. Not that this is the house of God or the temple of God. I don't believe that for a second. We are the house that God is building to inhabit. Okay, which is even more personal, which should move me to more prayer, right? But I think we should be using this building to pray individually, corporately. I believe we should have keys circulating out there where you can come to this building and pray anytime that you want to, and if you're making plans to come here and pray. Pray for who? What's the thought, y'all? Total world impact. Equipping and mobilizing the saints to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be those who are at least in this building probably at our homes, in our homes, at different times and different places, who are on our faces praying for the nations. I don't know about you, but I'm not real good at prayer, too many to catalog here. And we know that prayer is a gospel necessity. We should be praying without ceasing. We should be talking to God throughout the day. But I'm telling you, folks, we have got to be a people who assemble together for the purpose of praying for all peoples. And couple that with the focus of the Bible on the world. And we see that not only are we to pray, but we're to pray, as Isaiah said in the quoted passage today, for all people. So my question is, and this is not, oh, you're jerks and you're bad people. How are you doing? How are you doing at being a person of prayer for all peoples? How are we doing at being a place of prayer for all peoples? Something we can fix, right? In the power of the Spirit, we can confess, we can repent of our prayerlessness, and prayerlessness is sin. And we need to confess that to God. We need to be. But don't take my my word for it. First Timothy two one through four. First of all, first of all, then Paul says to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. We know watch this: for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is. desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there's a lot to pray for there. And Will mentioned it. These days that we're in, who are we supposed to be praying for? We're supposed to be praying for all people? We're supposed to be praying for those who are in high positions? Why? That we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Look at verse 3. Paul says, this is good. What's good? Praying for all people, praying for kings in high positions so that we can live a one quite like God and do it in every way. That's, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. When we become a people who pray for all people including those in high places, high authority places, our leaders, our president, pray, pray, for? And said to them, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age." Oh, that we would be a world-dominated, prayer-saturated group. Shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So that's prayer. Second one is prosperity. <clears throat> God hates the prosperity gospel, and so should we. But contrastive conjunction. I'm afraid the prosperity gospel is in our very Afraid we're saturated with it. I'm afraid we're immersed into it. Because here's the deal if we're honest with ourselves, we think that it's a sign of God's blessing when everything's going okay. We think God is upset with us when something goes wrong. It's a knee jerk reaction. Good if to do individually, all of us to do corporately, we need to turn over some tables in our lives to upset this wrong thinking. We need to get out of the habit of using, please listen, I'm I'm going to start that over, I'm going to read it exactly like I read it, but I want you to think about it again. We need to get out of the habit us individually, us corporately we need to get out of the habit of using God, of using church of using Christianity, of using Bible reading, prayer, and such as a means to get blessings from God. Because the blessings that we're thinking is, I just want everything to go all right. Everything goes all right, I'll be all right, and that means God's happy with me. And what we're doing is, we're using God. what's right. How many times have I sat with somebody in therapy and they're like, I'm trying to live right and all this bad stuff keeps happening. To which I say, yep. And it's not going to change. If you continue to seek to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we rub the lamp and God pops up and we say, hey, will you make things good for me? John Williams. Lord, I hope this day is good. I'm feeling empty and misunderstood. I should be thankful. Lord, I know I should. But, Lord, I hope this day is good. And the implication there is if things are good, God's happy with me. And if God's happy with me and I'm happy, everything's all right. And that's the prosperity gospel. You're like, but where's the money? Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's just ease and comfort. And we're extorting from God So that they could make money. And if you'll remember, we've seen Matthew before, this culture saw money as a sure sign of God's blessing. And when Jesus comes in and says that they turned the temple into a den of robbers, well, there's no blessing in that, right? There's only greed and selfishness at the expense of other people, which is anti Christ, anti Christian. So, what are we supposed to do here? You're like, what's the like you're just saying, we're bad, we're bad, we're bad. Watch this. Second Peter 2, 1-3. through three. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, because it feels good. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasted. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, way back at the beginning of the church, Peter's saying, hey, watch out. There's going to be people coming in, and they're going to soft pedal this thing. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to feel good. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to feel good. And when you're happy and you feel good, that means that you're experiencing the blessings of God. You're like, okay, but you still haven't told me what's the application here. Titus 1, 10-11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. It's our job to silence those people. You say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm saying turn over some tables. Throw some coins in the air. I'm saying, run some people out of your life. Run some people's teaching out of your life that doesn't deserve to be there, because it is what—it's teaching for shameful gain, and it's upsetting whole families. I'm not going to call people out by name here, but there are people that you do not need to be listening to. There are preachers you don't need. To Painful game, and they are upsetting your whole family. Run them out. Run them out. And this takes a lot of work. This takes a lot of discernment. I'll say this: husbands, fathers, this is primarily your job. You are the shepherd of your family. Your pre-recorded sermons are not welcome here. Your health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is repugnant to the God of the Bible and therefore it's repugnant to me and I will not tolerate it. And we also have to, what Will was saying, he said up here, we also got to start right here. And the thoughts of my mind and the affections but yours be done. Father, please bless me. Give me safety. Give me comfort. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things. And then to acknowledge, yet, not my will, but yours be done. And that starts right here. That starts right here. So start turning over some tables in your own head, in your own heart, too. And rid your life, your affections, your thoughts of the prosperity gospel. Do not tolerate it out. prayer prosperity and finally praise last point is praise <clears throat> listen to me the plan of god is for god to that they didn't need Jesus to run their show. Okay? They didn't need grace to extort money from people. And therefore, since they didn't receive grace from Jesus, they didn't worship him. Matter of fact, they're mad at him. Listen to these people worshiping you. What do you think? And shut them down. Because they hadn't received grace. Now, flip the script. The blind, the lame, and the children did receive his grace. And what did they do? See, there's a connection between receiving the grace of God and giving praise to God. If you're not receiving the grace of God, you're not going to praise God. But if you genuinely receive the grace of God, you will praise God. And this has always been God's plan. Ephesians 1, 11-14. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. According to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first fruits in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of His glory, the predestined plan of God is to the praise of His glory. in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, the plan of God from eternity past into eternity future is for everybody. Man, woman, every child, every ruler and authority in heavenly places would see his wisdom and worship him. And so what did he do? He redeemed people through the death of his son. Pay the sin debt of the helpless, the blind, the lame, the beggars, the children, so that he would receive praise from those who have received his grace. And we see in this full temple at first those who have not received the grace of God, who are not praising God. And then we see that temple emptied out, and then we see it fill back up with people who do receive the grace of God, and who do give, and then who do give praise to God because they have received the grace of God. And what I want to ask you today as we finish is this. Have you received the grace of God? A free gift that you cannot earn or deserve. Now, well, I'm trying harder to do better, you will never praise God that way. Because it's your efforts. It's you trying to make yourself feel good or trying to impress somebody else. That's not to the praise of His glory. If, however... You have realized I can't do anything to please him. I can't do anything to earn favor with him. I just have to receive the grace that he freely gives. That leads to a life of praise, and that's the goal. That's the end that these means justify. If it means I gotta flip over some tables, I'm gonna flip over some tables. If it means I gotta run some people out of my life, I'm gonna. I've got to realize that all His grace and everything that I've received is a free gift of His glory and His grace and that's what I need to do so that I might praise Him because one day every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bend the knee and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the pinnacle of what all creation and all history is leading to the end of is praise of God. What means will you take in your life to see that end now? God took extreme means, extreme lengths. God's grace leads to God's praise. This is God's plan. Those who have no need of the grace of God will never lead a life that ends in the praise of God. We are to be like the blind, the lame. The children, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the kingdom of praise to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, there is work to be done, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us and empower us, change us, shape us, mold us, so that we might be a praying people, praying for all peoples, praying for the nation, God, that we would not look at prosperity as the true sign of your blessing, but God, that we would look at praise as the true sign of knowing who you are and seeing the blessing that you have given us through the cross, through the work of Christ. And may our praise crown everything that we do so that whether we're eating or drinking or any such thing, we're doing it all to the glory of God. Yes, we need help, and you are able able to save those who are not saved. You're able to give life to the dead this morning, God. pray that you would do that to the praise of your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself. Sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all those people said. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. If you want to congregate, hang out, talk, please do so outside.